welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling on stage, here in Berlin and beyond. We're still staying home, but through the magic of podcasting, you can travel with us. And in this episode, we'll be going to Munster. Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Derbyshire is with me in Berlin, sort of, well, remotely from her own living room to tell us more. Hey, Katie. Hi, Susan. Yeah, I can see we're looking at each other on Skype and talking by some other method, which is slightly beyond me, but it's exciting. It's lovely to see you. It's good. I haven't seen you in ages. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. So anyway, we were at the Burg Hülshoff Center for Literature invited by them and by the Toledo program. And uh, the Toledo program works on cultural exchange by and for literary translators, so obviously very close to our hearts. Uh, What we did was we put together a show for them all about dead lady translators who are, of course, kind of triply ignored by being dead, by being ladies and by being invisible translators. Indeed, and it was a great show. We had a lovely audience as well. And what's also fun is that Burg Hülshoff is named for a dead lady. Exactly, Annette von Droste-Hülshoff, who was a 19th century German poet. And we, uh, in fact, got to do the show in her house, or one of her houses. (laughs) Yeah, she lived in this house from 1826. The venue is is called Haus Rüschhaus, very difficult to pronounce. We got there in the dark... And we found this country house built in 1748. It was a spooky journey, I have to admit. (laughs) It was a dark and stormy night, and there was a long and winding road, and there were (laughs) flashlights and possible ghost sightings. I think it was just an employee, but it was a spooky, spooky spooky moment. (laughs) It was very, very strange, yeah. But we did get a lovely warm welcome from the team around Jörg Albrecht and Fiona Dumann. And it was all kind of very period drama, right? It was, without the long skirts. <laughs> we were modern, we wore modern clothing. Um, so while you're listening, though, you have to imagine yourselves, you're nice and cosy in a panelled drawing room. But to get to the bathroom, you have to cut through this kitchen with a huge chimney and go out through the coach house. Yeah, uh, modern conveniences for a <laughs> vintage <laughs> location. That's crazy. Um, there was also in this room a fantastic chandelier, which I had to take pictures of, as well as a portrait of Annette von Drosterhuishof. And aside from Dead Ladies shows, or one show to start with, the Burg Hushof has a lot of really cool events from Jörg Albrecht and his team with lots of chances for the public to take part and get involved, including the Leseburgerinnen, which is a very cool initiative. Right. They're this club of ordinary local people getting more involved with the Centre for Literature, right? Indeed, and they do some events of their own, and they do interviews with some of the guests who come to speak there, and they talk to us about the Dead Lady Show, and they even produced a podcast about that, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes for any of you German speakers to check out. And we're going to learn more about them in next month's show because I uh, spoke to them for this podcast. Yes, it is a little meta, (laughs) (laughs) layers upon layers, podcasts upon Dead Lady Shows, but it was great fun. We have two talks recorded in Munster. The first comes from our other Dead Lady Show co-founder, Florian Dousens. And here he is on Dorothy L. Sayers. So chances are, if you were familiar with the name Dorothy L. Sayers, uh, pronounced Sayers. 
I know it looks Sayers, but because it's British people, Sayers. Um, so chances are you're familiar with her, mostly from her crime novels, which you found scattered at flea markets or like holiday cottages. It's very, very that. Um, books like Murder Must Advertise or The Five Red Herrings. Uh, or perhaps you encountered her in one of her many translations. But before today, did you also know that she wrote on pressing questions like, why work? <laughs> Or, even better, Are Women Human? <laughs> or that she wrote books like The Whimsical Christian, and that she was also a formidable translator in her own right. So the prolific and many-splendored Dorothy Lee Sayers was born in Oxford in 1893, the year New Zealand, by the way, uh, was the, became the first country to give women the right to vote. Woo-hoo. I know. <laughs> That's, it's very <laughs> embarrassing for all the other countries. <laughs> anyway, uh, her mother was sort of on the older side for the time. She was 37, and her father was a reverend who had gone to school with Oscar Wilde, and he was the headmaster of the Boys' Choir School for Christchurch Cathedral in Oxford, where Dorothy was also baptized. Before she was five, however, her father was offered a lucrative position in the countryside. Here's a quick drive-by picture. The gate uh, used to be part of Oliver Cromwell's house, which gives you a little bit of an indication of the class she was born into. The house had a day nursery and a night nursery, plus nine members of staff. Yet unlike a lot of Victorian upbringings, Dorothy's was very, very warm. Every morning she'd cuddle up with her mother and be read stories, learning to read in the process and writing in beautiful copper plates by the age of five. One morning, she writes, her father appeared in her nursery, and this is where I debut my British accent. (laughs) So her father appeared in her nursery, holding in his hand a shabby black book, which had already seen some service, and addressed to me the following memorable words, I think, my dear, that you are now old enough to begin to learn Latin. (laughs) She is six years old. Um, They are both especially enjoyed Latin jokes, like, Why are Roman sailors wicked? Any Latin speakers who are also English speakers? I know it's confusing here. Um, Because they are naughty. (laughs) That's a dad joke and a Latin joke right there. Soon her governesses add French and German to her repertoire, and Dorothy's reading romantic poetry and loving Robinson Crusoe, especially the gory parts. At 13, however, she finds a book that really captures her heart, The Three Musketeers. Um, She loves it so much that she actually divvies up the roles among the household. Her grandmother, who she was a little scared of, was Richelieu. (laughs) And Dorothy played Athos. Aside from aspiring to be a musketeer, um, young Dorothy also loves writing poetry, especially tricky rhyming schemes. Um, When she goes to boarding school in preparation for possibly heading to Oxford, where the first women's colleges had uh, started just about 10 years before Dorothy was born, she remains a fervent actress there and a writer, performing in Shakespeare plays and also writing her own. In the spring of 1911, Dorothy graduates, scoring the highest in all of England in the Cambridge Higher Local Examination, earning distinctions in French and spoken German. Entering Somerville College, uh, 
in Oxford. She spends her time singing in the Bach choir. Here she is parodying her choir director in drag, and she really enjoyed wearing eccentric earrings, like parrots and stuff. She would just have them dangling from her ears, and she skipped class a lot. With the start of World War I, most of Oxford's men disappear, so but with no brothers or lovers um, on the front lines, Dorothy isn't too bothered. In fact, she starts a club that she tongue-in-cheek called the Mutual Admiration Society, in which she and her women friends workshop essays, poetry, fiction, plays, now preferring to go by DLS because she hates the name Dorothy. DLS, of course, also is the acronym for the Dead Lady Show, by the way. Anyway, she has great taste. Um, uh, she finishes her degree with honors in 1915, though it wasn't until 1920 that she actually receives her master's degree because it's only then that women were allowed to receive a degree. They could study, but they wouldn't receive a degree beforehand. Uh, so in 1920, her and her friends are granted their masters, finally. She publishes a book of poetry, starts working on a translation of the Song of Roland, a 12th century old French text about Charlemagne's fight against the Saracens in Spain, and she spends some time apprenticing at a publisher in Oxford. She receives her first marriage proposal, but declines, saying, to have somebody devoted to me arouses all my worst feelings, I loathe being deferred to. I abominate being waited on. It infuriates me to feel that my words are numbered and my actions watched. I want somebody to fight with. <laughs> but when she moves to a cozy new apartment, she falls hard for her frail new neighbor, who isn't romantically interested, but convinces her to move with him to France, like you do, to teach at a boys' school anyway. There, while he keeps fainting off his bicycle, <laughs> she takes care of him. All the while, she works on a translation of Tristan, as you know, another epic poem from the 12th century, as well as her first detective novel. While she manages to publish Tristan fairly quickly, her detective novel takes a bit longer. So she works as a freelance translator from the French, moving to London. And in London, she learns how to make herself dinner very important life skill. She reads up on criminology at the British Library and starts working as a copywriter for an advertising agency. In 1923, she publishes this book, Whose Body? <laughs> her first crime novel, uh, introducing her delightfully nimble detective, Lord Peter Whimsey, whom she later described as a cross between Fred Astaire and Bertie Wooster. She also falls for an American of Jewish-Russian descent, and not only is he very exotic in that way, he's also a published author, beloved by Yeats and Ford Maddox Ford. He's also, sadly, a rather pretentious twat. <laughs> he's not a fan of crime fiction, and what's more, he's against marriage and really into free love. Uh, DLS, who's not against sex before marriage, per se, at least conceptually, she's still a virgin at this point. She balks at using condoms because they have, as she says, a taint of the rubber shop. <laughs> this, the smell, I guess, wasn't, <laughs> wasn't for her. When he doesn't want to commit, however, they break up, and DLS is distraught to learn that not only 
does he marry right after, like he gets married right after he moves back to the US, he marries a crime writer. I know. <laughs> yes. Um, she writes home, upset and very much on the rebound, dearest mother, don't faint, I'm coming home for Christmas on Saturday with a man and a motorcycle. <laughs> with requests that you will kindly give same a kind welcome and a few words of kindly cheer. It's not anyone you know, it's a poor devil who's been staying with the people above me and whom I chummed up with one weekend, finding him left lonely, so to speak. And he's been prettily grateful and has taken me out a lot on his bike. His name is Bill White and intellect isn't exactly his strong point. <laughs> I mean literary intellect. He knows all about cars and how to sail a boat and so on. And in fact, he's the last person you'd ever expect me to bring home, but he's really quite amiable and will be desperately grateful for a roof over his head. Uh, needless to say, Bill has no high-flying ideals about free love or anything like that. And although they do use protection, she gets pregnant. Since giving the child up for adoption wasn't legal yet, and Bill doesn't want any part of a baby, DLS decides to write to her favorite cousin who runs a childcare of sorts from her countryside cottage. I have been meaning for some time to write to you on a matter of business. There's an infant I'm very anxious you should have the charge of, and I hope very much indeed you'll be able to take it. It's not actually there yet, but it will be before many days are over. It won't have any legal father, poor little soul, but I know you would be all the more willing to help give it the best possible start in life on that account. I'm very personally interested in the matter, <laughs> and we'll tell you more about it later on. What would be the earliest possible moment at which you could take it? At present, everything depends on the girl's not losing her job. Everything has been most discreetly managed. Her retirement from public life is accounted for by illness. But naturally, she can turn up back at work plus a baby, at least not without letting stacks and stacks of people into the secret, which might then leak out. So you see, the sooner she could dump the infant on you and clear back to work, the more chance there is of there being money to support it. DLS was 30 years old at this point. Of course, she cannot keep up this charade for very long, quickly admitting to her cousin that she's the boy's mother soon after he's born. But keeping it a secret from her friends her colleagues and her family for the rest of her life. Yes, it was, it was only discovered, I think, in one of her biographies after her death, much, much later. Working hard to keep up appearances and provide the three pounds a month for the upkeep of little John, who she visits on a narrow car motorcycle of her own, <laughs> um, she starts gaining weight and losing her hair buying a dramatic gray wig and channeling all her energy in her advertising work and her fiction. She writes to her American ex, I've been crying for about three years now and I'm heartily weary of the exercise. It's very irritating to have no one to whom I can boast about my son. I have a careless rage for life and secrecy tends to make me hard-tempered. Give me a man that's human and careless and loves life, one who can enjoy the rough and tumble of passion. I like to die splitting and squaring, you know. I'm no mean wrestler, but there again, precautionary measures cramp the style. Boh, if you had chosen me, I'd have given you three sons by this time. She was um, not happy. <laughs> but in another one of her weekly letters to her parents, 
two years later, she drops this bomb. I am getting married on Tuesday, weather permitting. <laughs> to a man named Fleming, who is at the moment a motoring correspondent to the news of the world and otherwise engaged in journalism. No money, but a good job. 42 and otherwise eminently suitable and all that. I think you will rather like him. At first, the match seems to be made in heaven. Their love life is a success. Um, she had gotten herself fitted with a so-called Dutch cap. Um, he helps get her books reviewed, and not only that, but he knows how to please her in other crucial ways as well. As she writes, I have a first-class experienced male chef capable of turning out a perfect dinner for any number of people, who not only demands no salary, but also contributes to the support of the household. I came across this paragon some years ago, and having sampled his cooking and ascertained that he held quite sound opinions on veal, which I detest, and garlic, which I appreciate, married him. So far, the arrangement seems to work very well, and since giving me notice would be a troublesome and expensive matter, I am hoping he will stay. Uh, this, of course, did not exactly help her lose weight. Um, <laughs> the, the elephant is crated, she would say in later years after she'd made her way into a friend's car. But her husband, while an excellent cook, has health problems, a result from being gassed and shell-shocked during the war, not to mention drinking too much. Um, and over the years, he becomes less and less comfortable with his wife's success, especially since he's mostly unemployed. Worse, he wants little to do with her son. DLS, meanwhile, was contracted to write one Lord Peter novel a year and is still writing ad copy. Here's a campaign that she did for Coleman's Mustard. Um, and another very famous one for Guinness. Two cans in their nest agree, Guinness is good for you. Open some today and see what one or two can do. <laughs> she could also do a good dad joke. She compensated for her lack of money by giving it all to her detective. As she writes, when my cheap rug got a hole in it, I ordered him an Aubusson carpet. When I had no money to pay my bus fare, I presented him with a Daimler double six, and when I felt dull, I let him drive it. I can heartily recommend this inexpensive way of furnishing to all who are discontented with their incomes. What's more, she wrote herself into her books in the form of Harriet Vane, a, a crime writer who we first meet um, when she is accused of murder. Yes, yeah, so Lord Peter takes an interest in her case, proposing marriage at their first meeting in prison, because that's the kind of guy he is. This is their second meeting from a 1980s BBC adaptation starring the wonderful and, and alive um, Harriet Walter. Here they are. Are you still going to marry me? Of course. Why? What's so fascinating about me, Peter? Well... Is that a dark side to you, something about a murderess that draws you, excites you? It can't be that, can it? Because I know you're not a murderess. Well, what is it then? You are bearing in mind, aren't you, that I've had a lover? Oh, yes. So have I. Several, in fact. It's uh, the sort of thing that could happen to anyone. I can uh, produce quite good testimonials. I'm told I make love rather nicely. Though I am at a bit of a disadvantage at the moment. One can't be too convincing the other end of a table with a bloke looking through the window. I'll take your word for it. Of course. I won't always be at this disadvantage. But I might bet an even greater one. Don't be so damn discouraging. 
Anybody would think you had no confidence in me. Peter, people have been wrongly condemned before now. Only because I wasn't there. Oh, I never thought of that. They're all on YouTube. (laughs) They're a little slow, but very delightful. Just like this. Um, With the arrival of Harriet Vane in the novels came a slight rewriting of Lord Peter too, as DLS carefully repositioned him to be a slightly more worthy mate. She writes, It has been said by myself and others that a love interest is only an intrusion upon a detective story. But to the characters involved, the detective interest might well seem an irritating intrusion upon their love story. As you might have gathered from those books I showed you earlier on and I mentioned, DLS was a Christian and uh, religious enough, it has to be said, to think poorly of Judaism since they, quote unquote, failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Later in her career, she fell into writing religious plays for the stage and BBC Radio because she disagreed with, as she said, the general air of stained glass window decorum with which the tale is usually presented. Instead of dry dogma, DLS wanted to emphasize the weird and the wondrous, the shocking twists and profound mysteries, the resurrection, you know, the trinity. (laughs) These are really weird things, and she wanted to to make sure that that was highlighted. Um, She created quite the ruckus, though, when she had biblical characters speak in everyday English, like when someone suggests that Judas might have squealed on Jesus though this landed her in hot water with the tabloids at the time. The results were wildly popular, at times even overshadowing her other work. She was not a meek Christian, though, often raising the question why the church seemed so focused on what people did in their bedrooms, whereas Jesus would have been more interested to find out what was happening in corporate boardrooms. Furthermore, as she writes, Christ himself made no difference between women and men laid down no separate rules for female behavior, went to parties in disreputable company, cured diseases by any means that came handy, with a shocking casualness in the matter of other people's pigs and property. As someone who often dressed mannishly and did a man's job, she also didn't buy into traditional roles and dress codes for men and women. Here's an excerpt from her 1947 essay, Are Women Human? Let us take this terrible business, so distressing to the minds of bishops, of the women who go about in trousers. We are asked, why do you want to go about in trousers? They are extremely unbecoming to you. You only do it to copy the men. To this we may very properly reply, it is true that they are unbecoming. Even on men they are remarkably unbecoming. (laughs) But as you have discovered for yourselves, they are comfortable. They do not get in the way of one's activities like skirts, and they protect the wearer from drafts about the ankles. As a human being, I like comfort and dislike drafts. If the trousers do not attract you, so much the worse. For the moment, I do not want to attract you. I want to enjoy myself as a human being, and why not? As for copying you, certainly you thought of trousers first. And to that extent, we must copy you. But we are not such abandoned copycats as to attach those useful garments to our bodies with braces. There we draw the line. These machines of leather and elastic are unnecessary and unsuited to the female form. They are, moreover, hideous beyond description. And as for the indecency of which you sometimes accuse the trousers, 
we at least can take off our coats without becoming the half-undressed bedroom spectacle that a man presents in his braces. Uh, for her final massive project, she was first inspired in 1944 when during an air raid she fled to a shelter, grabbing the first book she could get her hands on, which happened to be Dante's Divina Commedia. She writes, I can remember nothing like it since I first read The Three Musketeers. However foolish it may sound, the plain fact is that I bolted my meals, neglected my sleep, work, and correspondence, drove my friends crazy, and paid only distracted attention to the doodlebugs, here she means bombs, which happened to be infesting the neighborhood at the time, until I had panted my way through the three realms of the dead from top to bottom and bottom to top. So uh, this translation preserves Dante's very tricky terza rima, which translators among you will be like, what, how? She does it. Um, and she translated for Penguin Classics, which at that point was brand new. Even from this very brief overview that I've given you now, um, DLS had an immensely rich career, that's clear. It's also clear that she had a not-so-happy love life. Yet there's one thing that seems to connect DLS's wildly divergent passions of writing crime fiction, translating the classics, and spreading the word of God. And that's the way these passions engaged her intellect and that of her readers. Each she approached from an intellectual angle, puzzling out creative murders, tricky rhyme schemes, and paradoxical church dogma. She wrote, since I cannot come at God through intuition or through my emotions or through my inner light, there's only the intellect left, and that's a very different matter. Where the intellect is dominant, it becomes the channel of all the other feelings. The passionate intellect is really passionate. It's the only point at which ecstasy can enter. I do not know whether we can be saved by the intellect, but I do know that I can be saved by nothing else. In her detective novels, she also distrusted intuition, as becomes clear from the oath she helped write for the detection club a group of crime writers, of which she was the president from 1947 until her death, um, all new members of the club were required to place their hand on Eric the Skull. Um, there's a picture of Eric. <laughs> and Dorothy looking very uh, appropriately respectful of Eric. And so they had to place their hands on Eric the Skull and answer in the affirmative to the following question. Do you promise that your detectives shall well and truly detect the crimes presented to them using those which it may please you to bestow upon them and not placing reliance on nor making use of divine revelation, feminine intuition, mumbo jumbo, chiggery pokery, coincidence, or act of God? Agatha Christie would later take on the presidency of the detection club after a DLS died quite suddenly of a heart attack in 1957, aged only 64. She was also smoking 50 cigarettes a day at that point. Uh, without having finished translating the third book of uh, The Divine Comedy, Paradise, she did leave behind 11 Lord Peter novels, plus countless stories, essays, letters, not to mention 350 reviews of crime novels that she also churned out, plus, of course, her son. I would like to leave you tonight with some of her thoughts on gender or some more of her thoughts on gender from a 1947 essay called The Human Not Quite Human. 
Probably no man has ever troubled to imagine how strange his life would appear to himself if it were unrelentingly assessed in terms of his maleness. If everything he wore, said, or did had to be justified by reference to female approval. If from school and lecture room, press and pulpit, he heard the persistent outpouring of a shrill and scolding voice bidding him remember his biological function. If he were vexed by continual advice how to add a rough male touch to his typing, how to be learned without losing his masculine appeal, how to play bridge without incurring the suspicion of impotence. His newspaper would assist him with a men's corner, telling him how, by the expenditure of a good deal of money and a couple of hours a day, he could attract the girls and retain his wife's affection. And when he'd succeeded in capturing a mate, his name would be taken from him and society would present him with a special title to proclaim his achievement. People would write books called History of the Male or Males of the Bible or The Psychology of the Male and he would be regaled daily with headlines such as Gentleman's Doctor's Discovery or Male Secretary Wins Calcutta Sweep, <laughs> Men Artists at the Academy, if, after a few centuries of this kind of treatment, the male was a little self-conscious, a little on the defensive, and a little bewildered about what was required of him, I should not blame him. If he presented the world with a major social problem, I should scarcely be surprised. It would be more surprising if he had retained any rag of sanity and self-respect. Uh, suffice to say that Dorothy... L. Sayers uh, managed to retain her sanity and her self-respect until the end. And if you want to know more, uh, you can read either Dorothy L. Sayers, Her Life and Soul, written by her friend Barbara Reynolds, or uh, the one by David Coombs, subtitled A Careless Rage for Life. There's also a biography in German called Ich war schon immer ein robustes kleines Biest. Also in German, she was an excellent writer, clearly, by Ingeborg Forsmann. And while I haven't read these next two yet, I should note that DLS is a key figure in two group biographies, the Mutual Admiration Society that I mentioned earlier. Um, the subtitle of that book is How Dorothy L. Sayers and Her Oxford Circle Remade the World for Women by Mo Moulton and Square Haunting, Five Women, Freedom, and London Between the Wars by Francesca Wade. Or, of course, you can pick up any Lord Peter novel. Um, you won't be disappointed. Thank you. Florian Dowsens on Dorothy L. Sayers, recorded live at Haus Rüschhaus by Brigitte Hamar. We'll have some pictures of Dorothy for you, along with some scenes from our live show in Münster, including that gorgeous chandelier on our website, deadladieshow.com slash podcast. Or you can visit our social media channels at Dead Ladies Show for more extras. So in our next episode, we'll be in Munster again. And Katie will be telling us about another Dead Lady translator. Katie, who is it? That's Willa Muir, great woman. Very exciting. So look out for that. Our jaunty theme song is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsons and Katie Darbisher. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me. Thanks to Florian. Thanks to you, Katie. Thank you, Susan. And thanks to everybody listening. I'm Susan Stone. Bye from Berlin. Be well. Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Borg Hutzhoff Center for Literature.